During World War II, a very unusual battle took place in the city of Rome. It was a battle of power and integrity and faith between a Vatican priest, Father Hugh O'Flaherty, and a German SS officer, Colonel Herbert Kepler. And their battle was chronicled in the movie The Scarlet and the Black, which starred Gregory Peck and Christopher Plummer. And at the time of this story, Germany has invaded Italy. They have captured Rome and they have surrounded the Vatican. The times are desperate. And what do you do in desperate times? Some priests actually join the resistance. One even becomes a gun runner, and he smuggles arms to the partisans, and he's captured and tortured and executed. Father Hugh believes that as a priest, he cannot take up arms. He believes that his calling is to be the hands and feet of Jesus to anyone in need, and the fact that a war is going on should not change that. And so he continues to perform his pastoral duties. He befriends people in the local Jewish community, people who are continually under pressure and being harassed. And he ensures that the Vatican continues to be a sanctuary for anyone in need. And so, for example, when British and U.S. airmen are shot down over Italy and they make their way to Rome, Father Hugh gives them sanctuary. And over time, he organizes a group of priests and nuns and local citizens to provide safe houses where these men can be protected. And at the peak, this network is hiding more than 3,000 people all over Rome. And this puts Father O'Flaherty at tremendous risk. Colonel Kepler is the officer in charge of security, and he figures out what the priest is doing but he never can catch him at it. So he tries to put a crimp in his activities. He paints this broad white line around the outside of the Vatican, and he says, this is where Vatican neutrality ends, and if you step across that line, and we catch you doing things you shouldn't be doing, you will be arrested. And Father Hugh knows that if he's arrested, he likely will be tortured and executed. That's the threat, that's the warning, and he ignores it. And in a variety of disguises, he continues to go all over Rome, when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, to continue what he believes is his calling to perform a mission of mercy. And then out of frustration, Colonel Kepler invites Father O'Flaherty to a social event where he issues a final warning. I want us to see this scene depicted in the movie and to see the confrontation between these two men. Please turn your attention to the screen. Colonel Kapler, what a surprise. Not for me, Monsignor. I was looking forward to continuing our talk. Were you now? Well, I would have thought we'd covered just about everything there was to say. Ah, but that was before I'd given you my autograph. Before I'd heard of your reputation for being so amusing. You also have quite a reputation 
true, but I'm German and know my enemies. You're Irish. How strange to feel such concern for the enemies of your country. Speaking of your enemies, it's just about the entire civilized world, isn't it? I was told you had wit. I find you disappointingly obvious. Oh, forgive me. I just wanted to make sure that you understood my meaning. Do not attempt to provoke me. I had you invited here to give you a warning. After tonight, if you take one step outside the Vatican territory, you'll be arrested on site. Trundle, do I get the feeling that you'd like to put a crimp in my social life? Damn you! And your social life? You stay behind that white line and you'll spend the rest of the war in Regina Celli prison. Well, the way the war is going, that might not be long at all. You listen to me, priest. No, you listen to me. I'm from a neutral country. I have diplomatic immunity. I am a member of the Holy Office of the Catholic Church. You cannot tell me what to do. I own Rome. Not you, not the Pope. Just because you wear a frock, it won't protect you. Remember your gunner on a priest. I do remember him. And so does every person in Italy who understands the meaning of freedom. Get out. Go back to the Vatican where you belong. This is your last party. Colonel Kepler has all of the might and power of Germany and the German army behind him. And he has the power to make good on his threats, which everyone knows many people already have been arrested and executed. And the fact is, at that moment, every person in Rome is, in essence, a captive of Germany and Colonel Kepler. And yet, in that confrontation, he's the one who loses his self-control, because his power and authority only come from the things of this world. As he faces Kepler, Father Hugh has only his faith in God and his deep conviction about what is right. No one in that crowd speaks up on his behalf. At that moment, he stands alone. Yet he stands his ground fearlessly. And what does he do with that final warning? He ignores it. He continues to do what he always has done. He refuses to stop. I watch that confrontation and I find myself asking, what would I do in such a situation? What would you do? When it boils down to the choice of either preserving our lives and protecting ourselves or living by faith, what would we do? Father Hugh illustrates one way to answer that question. He displays spiritual courage by his willingness to put his life on the line. And the kind of courage he displays is the kind of courage that we see on display in our Bible passage today. In the book of Daniel chapter 3, 
we find a story that occurs at a very different place in a world very, very different. And yet the question, the ultimate question is the same. How does a person of faith respond when an ungodly culture demands that you conform or die? And this morning, we're going to see three men of faith. Three men with the very unusual names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they wrestle with that difficult question, they're going to face pressure from all sides. Everyone and everything in their society stands against them. They truly stand alone, and they must decide, my life or my faith? Let's see what they do. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he set up. And so all of these provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now back in chapter 2, we learned that Daniel has been promoted. He now serves as the overseer of all the wise men in the entire Babylonian empire. So he lives and serves in the city in the royal court. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also have been promoted to leadership roles, but they serve outside the city, out in the Babylonian province. And it is there, out in the province, where this story takes place. So it impacts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it does not directly impact Daniel. It's out here in the province where many foreigners live. These are people from nations that have been conquered by Babylon. These are people who are forced to live under Babylonian rule. These people are the ones most likely to instigate rebellion. So King Nebuchadnezzar plans a demonstration of raw power to intimidate them into submission. The king builds an idol. It's 96 feet tall by 9 feet wide. And based on these measurements, it likely describes an obelisk, which is a very tall, very narrow pillar. Obelisks actually are quite common in many cultures. If you want to see an obelisk, go to Washington, D.C. and look at the Washington Monument. It's an obelisk. The one Nebuchadnezzar makes is dedicated to a Babylonian idol, most likely the god Nebo, for whom King Nebuchadnezzar is named. And he has this image made entirely of gold to dazzle people with its brilliant appearance and to demonstrate the incredible wealth that he has amassed through military plunder. And the king does not simply display this idol It's dedicated to his God. He demands that people living in the province now worship his God or face a gruesome death. 
everyone must honor this egotistical leader by honoring his God. And this king is an example of how corrupt leaders love to exalt themselves. And most demagogues down through history all act the same way. In World War II, Hitler's picture was plastered all over Germany. Stalin's picture was everywhere in Russia. And dictators and tyrants around the world today do exactly the same thing. It's all about them. King Nebuchadnezzar is an arrogant tyrant out of that same corrupt mold. He rules through terror and power, and he cares nothing for human life. People merely are tools for him to accomplish his own selfish ambitions, and if they refuse to conform, he simply discards them. And so he makes a fearful threat. Everyone knows he's willing to carry it out. Everyone knows he is able to carry it out. They know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, if they do not worship his God, they will die horribly, brutally. And so how do the people living in the province respond? We see the answer in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all of these musical instruments, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Think about that. As soon as they heard, as soon as they heard, there was no hesitation. There were no second thoughts. Just instant, immediate compliance. Think of the power that's on display here. One arrogant, egotistical, tyrannical king drives an entire crowd of people to their knees. All of these people worship a lifeless hunk of metal in order to comply with the king's edict. They would rather sacrifice their values than sacrifice their lives. All of this takes place in the region where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve as high-ranking administrators. They're supposed to be here. And yet, as faithful Jews, they ignore the king's edict. They do not join this compliant crowd. And then, some jealous men rat them out to the king. Look what happens next. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever! Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Ah, but there are some Jews. There are some Jews whom you've set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. It seems like almost every organization has sycophants. People who curry favor with the powerful because it's the only way that they can feel any sense of significance. We, we often call them yes-men. People who just go along 
They want to appease those in power. And that's the case with these astrologers of Babylon. They're part of a group called the Chaldeans, and that group serves as the wise men of Babylon. And these men only can have influence as long as they keep the king happy. They've got to stay in his favor. And so they always go out of their way to stroke his ego. And here the goal is to make themselves look good by making others look bad. That's what sycophants often do. And in this case, there's another element involved, and it's the element of jealousy. These wise men are jealous of Daniel. He's earned the king's respect, and he now is the overseer of all of the wise men. And they cannot stand the fact that they must serve under a man who is both a foreigner and a Jew. And now here they sense an opportunity. Daniel's not here. They can't get at Daniel. But they can damage his reputation. And they can cause him great hurt by bringing about the execution of his three close friends. Men who share his faith in God. And as they take this action against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to see the incredible irony, the painful irony of their actions. Back in chapter 2, Daniel interpreted a dream for the king, and as a result, he saved the life of every wise man in the empire. In other words, if it weren't for Daniel, these astrologers would be dead. And yet, instead of repaying kindness with kindness, they let jealousy, jealousy for Daniel, rule their actions, and they strive to take action against his friends. Do you and I ever do that? Let ourselves be driven by jealousy? These jealous, sycophantic men want to curry favor with the king. And as a result, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego now find themselves drawn into a life-or-death situation. Look what happens next in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Wow. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, think about that. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the king gets this news that three of his own high-ranking officials are defying his orders. I understand why he'd be enraged. It's a personal insult. It's a great betrayal. And so he calls these men before him, and he angrily confronts them and gives them a personal ultimatum. You must bow down or die. 
So, so how should you respond if you're in their shoes? How should you respond to this dire threat from a powerful king who can snuff your life out like that? I think it would be very tempting to give in. And not just to save your own life. We need to remember, these are three faithful Jews. They're serving in high-ranking positions in a pagan empire. I think it would be very easy for them to say to themselves something like this, look at all the good we can do for God if we stay alive and remain in power. In fact, we can influence people toward good instead of evil, and we might even convert some people to believe in our God. So we can just pretend to worship the idol. And then we can continue God's work among the Babylonians. You see, sometimes it's really easy to rationalize our behavior and even to rationalize it in a spiritual way. And yet the message of the Bible is clear. The Ten Commandments clearly clearly states do not worship other gods. Do not bow down before any idols. And no amount of rationalization can get around those very clear commands. And pretending to worship under other gods is a very lousy witness. And do we really think that God would want his work in Babylon to continue under false pretenses? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand that this is the moment. This is the time. This is the place where they have to take a stand. They must draw a firm line here regardless of the consequences. And I think that their response to the king here in verses 16 to 18 is one of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible because they affirm three powerful truths. First, they acknowledge that they serve an authority greater than the king. And that's pretty bold when you're standing face to face with a tyrannical ruler. And second, they express complete and total confidence in God's ability to save them from the furnace. And third, they don't claim to know if God will or will not rescue them. In other words, they affirm what God can do, but they do not presume to know what God will do in this specific moment. And that's huge. And that response tells us that all of the actions which follow flow out of their faith, not on a guaranteed outcome. And really, whether God rescues them or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant to their behavior. They're going to do what is right, and they will not worship Nebuchadnezzar's God. End of story. And as we might expect, this response provokes the king even more. Look at what he does. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. 
and then the most incredible thing of all. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So when the men defy him and say, we're not going to bow down, the king loses his self-control. He's so enraged that he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. There's some evidence that that probably is a colloquial expression about pushing something to its highest limit. Perhaps like somebody saying today, oh, they heated it to the max. Whether Whether we take this comment to be literal or colloquial, the point is clear. The furnace was heated way more than normal as a direct expression of the king's vindictive anger toward these men. He wants them to die in agony as they are roasted alive. And one of the great tragedies of human history is that so many times, in so many places, burning people alive has been a common way to incite fear and exact punishment. For all kinds of reasons, people have been burned at the stake, they've been fried in pans, they've been boiled in oil, and they've been tossed into blazing furnaces. In ancient times, there was something called a beehive furnace, which often was used for this barbaric purpose. It was called the beehive furnace because of its shape. It was tall and round, and there was an opening at the top. You put the fuel in from the top, and there were ventilation holes around the side. And at full blast, a beehive furnace could shoot flames out of its opening, and the intense heat could be felt at a great distance. And the description here in our passage lines up with that of a beehive furnace. Nebuchadnezzar has to get some of the strongest soldiers in his army to lift these men up and to get them up to the top of the furnace so that they can be thrown in and they have to get so close that they themselves are overcome by the heat. They're killed by the intense heat. And then the three men fall down inside the furnace. And I think it's very revealing that Nebuchadnezzar expresses no remorse for his dead soldiers. He could care less about them. All he cares about is making an example of the men who dared to defy him. And so he's closely watching all of this take place. He's far enough back not to be harmed by the heat, but he's close enough to see inside. And as he peers into that furnace, he cannot believe what's happening. He sees three men walking around inside the furnace. They're walking around. He's been waiting to gloat over their death. And they're alive. And there's a fourth figure in there. Somebody's joined them. Now, who is this fourth person in the furnace with the men? We don't know. The original text simply says it's a divine being. And so this could be an angel. It could be a manifestation of God himself. But whoever this is, God sent someone to be present with these men during their trial by fire. And 
I love what's happening here because, because it puts flesh and bones to biblical principles. God has not promised to keep his children safe and secure from all bad situations. He's not promised to prevent things from happening to us. What he has said is, I will be with you. I will be with you no matter what you go through. And that's exactly what these three men of faith experienced. You see, I find it interesting. He could have rescued them at any time. He could have rescued them before they got thrown into the furnace. But they had to go through that moment of terror. It's after they're in the furnace, while they're inside, surrounded by the flames, that a divine presence appears and is with them. It's a visible sign to them. It's a visible sign to us that our God never will leave us nor forsake us. I try to put myself into this situation. And it's hard to even imagine what this must have been like. I picture myself standing there, one of these three men, and here's this blast furnace just going full tilt. King Nebuchadnezzar issues his command, and I'm grabbed, and I'm bound up. And as I'm dragged closer and closer to that furnace, I can feel the waves of the intense heat. And then suddenly I'm being lifted up in the air, getting ready to be dropped into the furnace, and I probably have a flash of fear. I think to myself, this is it. And then I'm dropped inside, and suddenly I don't feel a thing. I'm standing there in the midst of the coals and the embers and the flame and the heat, and I'm walking around. Whoa. It would be absolutely incredible. It would be overwhelming and just watching all of this is overwhelming for the king he cannot believe what he's seeing and and who could blame him who could believe it what he is seeing defies reality and that of course is what reveals the presence and the power of God look at how the king responds to all of this Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. Boy, I would too. (laughs) They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, listen to this, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I I just marvel at this scene. There's the king standing there, peering into this furnace, watching these men walk around. And he has to shout to be heard over the the roar of the fire and the fact that he's standing back at some distance. And as as these men crawl out of the furnace and everybody gathers around, it becomes very evident that when God does a miracle, he doesn't do it by half measures. 
there is not a single shred of evidence that these men have even been inside the blazing furnace. It's no surprise then that the king suddenly develops a healthy respect for God. When he calls them to come out, he calls them servants of the most high God. That is an amazing turnaround from a few minutes earlier when with great derision he said, if you don't bow down, what God can deliver you from my hand? I think he just found out. And he's in awe of God's power. And he's in awe of the willingness of these men to defy him and to put their lives on the line. And what we see here is that when the choice came down to a very stark decision, my life or my faith, these three men chose faith. Now there's a sad part to this story because the king may be in awe, but he hasn't changed. He's still a ruthless and barbaric ruler, so he pronounces a hideous punishment on anyone who mocks the God of the Jews. This isn't the first time we've seen him threaten to cut people up into pieces and turn their houses to rubble. It seems to be his favorite threat. And it reveals that he has a corrupt heart. And it's so sad to realize that people can see a dramatic display of the power of God and still choose not to soften their hearts toward him. Nebuchadnezzar may be in awe, but he is not yet ready to submit his own life to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For the moment, at least, he understands that there are some limitations to his power when compared to the power of God. And that's a good thing for any ruler or leader to understand. And so he honors these men for their extraordinary faith in an extraordinary God. So how do we take the lessons of this story and apply them to our own lives? Well, like these three men, we live in the midst of an unbelieving world. And we often face pressures to conform and to acknowledge the idols of our modern world or pay a price. And so today we see Christians being harassed and fined and fired from their jobs for holding to a biblical view of human sexuality and a biblical view of marriage. That's perhaps the most vivid example of modern-day idols, and yet there's so many others. Think about what our culture worships. We worship technology, and we worship money, and we worship possessions. We worship entertainment, and we worship pleasure. And all of those things can be useful, but they all can be misused and abused. And in any of those areas of life, and so many others, you and I can be pressured to conform and to turn away from our faith and to deny our faith and to simply go along with the crowd. And if we take a stand and refuse to worship the idols of our unbelieving culture, we may face adversity. We may not lose our lives, but our lives certainly can be uprooted. Just ask someone who's lost their job or being fined for taking a stand for biblical values. And so we have a very timely powerful example here. In any area of life where you and I might feel pressured to conform, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us the way. 
that when the choice boils down to our lives, maybe the loss of life or maybe just the interruption of the convenience and comfort of our lives, when the choice boils down to our lives or our faith, God wants us to choose faith. He wants us to refuse to follow the compliant crowd. He wants us to be willing to do what is right regardless of the price we may pay. And it's so important to understand that he may not rescue us the same way he rescued these men. But I believe there is a great promise in this story that when we choose to do what is right, he will be with us and he will walk with us through the most painful moments of life. And so I believe this story raises questions that you and I need to wrestle with. Is there any area of life where you feel pressured to conform? Maybe in a friendship, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood. Are you under pressure to follow the crowd? If so, how might the example of these three men encourage you and inspire you? How might God be inviting us to follow their example and to live by faith? And in those critical moments, when it boils down to that question, my life or my faith, my hope and prayer is that we always would say, I will live by faith.